Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Fascist Italy could imitate the Roman Empire all it wished. It could have marches, it could put eagles all over everything, it could restore lots of plazas and authentic Roman ruins. But if it didn't actually take over territory, that would all be just rhetoric. And Italy already had a few colonies in Africa. At this point, Italy has Somalia and Libya, but it wasn't enough for an imperial power, and it was never enough for ancient Rome, to just have territory. You needed to take territory. So if Italy wanted to grandly expand its holdings and grandly expand fascism, the obvious candidate was Ethiopia. Toward the end of the Age of Colonization in the 1890s, Italy had previously tried to take over Ethiopia, and it was defeated by a lot. In fact, it was the only time an African kingdom had defeated an invading European invader. It's one of the best underdog victory stories ever. I might even go into it in a future episode. So Italy had a grudge. It had what it considered to be a historical grievance that it wanted to correct, even though that historical grievance had been, it hadn't really been able to go into someone else's country, kill people, and take their stuff. Ethiopia had, totally sensibly, told them no. But nevertheless, a lot of people in Italy felt like they were the aggrieved party in this. But invading Ethiopia presented a few challenges. It was a recognized sovereign country, which, just like Italy, was a member of the League of Nations, that thing from after World War I that was supposed to have diplomacy and prevent war forever, and didn't. If Italy invaded Ethiopia, that would have meant provoking an international incident, a potential breakdown of European diplomacy, the potential collapse of the League of Nations, the flouting of all kinds of international norms. And, in the face of all that potentiality, Italy thought, that seems fine. Now, I'm not going to go into all of the details of the war. Uh, I don't want to turn this into a military history podcast. Lord knows there are enough of those. Uh, what I'm interested in are the political ramifications of the Italo-Ethiopian War, what it meant for international politics at the time, and what it also meant for domestic politics back in Italy. But I do want to briefly talk about one conflagration that supposedly sparked the whole thing. Italy needed an excuse to go into Ethiopia, even though Italy would later on reveal itself to be totally fine flouting all manner of international norms. At this point, it still needed to manufacture an incident that would make it look like it had a righteous cause. So, in September of 1934, there was, for still unknown reasons, a clash between Somali troops under Italian command and Ethiopian troops. It was at a town called Walwal, which back then was on the border between Italian Somaliland and Ethiopia, though now Walwal is pretty well inside modern Ethiopia. During this clash, 107 Ethiopians were killed, and there were 50 deaths on the Italian and Somali side. And again, we still don't know what exactly they were fighting over. The Somalis claimed that the Ethiopians had attacked them. The Ethiopians claimed the opposite. And it's not like this came out of nowhere. 
Uh, apparently, there was a lot of back and forth over the border between the Italian and Somali and, and the Ethiopian troops at this point. So, if Italy wanted to pick a place where there was a lot of tension and where a flare-up wouldn't look just random and capricious, they picked the right place. After the 1934 Wawal incident, Haile Selassie, the emperor of Ethiopia, complained to the League of Nations about the Italian aggression. Over the course of 1935, the League of Nations debated the incident in what would become known as the Abyssinian Crisis. And during a long series of negotiations and fact-finding and all that, it became more and more apparent that fascist Italy was intent on conquest. Uh, for instance, in August of 1935, one proposal would have offered Italy substantial territorial concessions in Ethiopia if it were to just drop everything. The League of Nations said, okay, if you accept these large tracts of land and just go away, we can be done with this. But Mussolini refused. He didn't want to be granted territory by the League of Nations as a way of buying his cooperation. He wanted to win a war. He wanted glory. He didn't just want to make the map look bigger. He wanted to be able to say that Italian troops gloriously murdered people and made the map bigger. By September, it was clear that the League would not be able to do anything, and the Wall Wall incident, which was most likely manufactured by Italy to start a war, remained unresolved. Mussolini had his excuse to invade. And after that inciting incident, Italy was able to also drum up public support for their war with all kinds of other justifications, like the usual rhetoric about Europeans quote-unquote civilizing African lands. There was plenty of that to go around. Uh, there were also arguments about how several portions of Ethiopia were controlled by local unofficial authorities, as opposed to the legitimate Ethiopian government. And in those various backwaters, where the government didn't have a lot of power, slavery was still widely practiced. And Italy, fascist Italy, was able to say it was going to go in to where the government of Ethiopia could not, and grandly liberate all of these people who were being enslaved in all kinds of gruesome ways. This was part and parcel of that civilizing rhetoric. This is some vintage white man's burden stuff here. Now, Episode 122 of this show, coming up, will be all about racial policies and politics and ideas in fascist Italy, but it would be irresponsible of me to not mention it here. The war in Ethiopia was an opportunity for an ultra-nationalist country to export its people to another part of the globe, to export Italianness outside of Italy. This is a quote from Fascist Modernities, an excellent book by NYU historian Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Professor Giat says, quote, Concerns over white population numbers had informed fascist social policy since the late 1920s, but took on a new urgency with the diffusion of crisis ideologies during the Depression. By 1934, the Duce worried aloud that the numeric and geographical expansion of the yellow and black races meant that the civilization of the white man is destined to perish. The Ethiopian invasion was seen as an opportunity to correct this situation. Fascist policies of demographic colonization that foresaw the creation of permanent Italian settlements 
would not only solve Italy's land hunger problem, but begin the repopulation of East Africa as a white European space. Unquote. If you are familiar with Nazi Germany, and you have heard the idea of Lebensraum, this sounds a lot like that. For fascists in Italy, and also elsewhere, it is not enough for their nation, their imagined community, to simply exist and prosper. It has to exist in a state of relative superiority to other imagined communities. And, over and over again, something I've seen in fascist ideology is that prospering is almost always a zero-sum game. It's almost always perceived as something that one block does at the expense of another, which is not really how the world works. But this is extraordinarily important to how fascists in Italy and elsewhere see the world. And speaking of relative power, it's important to get into the relative military power differential of this war. Italy might have been the least powerful of the European powers, but it was still a European power, and it still had a then-modern military. Ethiopia, on the other hand, was not nearly as well-equipped. Most of the rifles and vehicles that their armed forces were equipped with had been around for some decades, some since the 1890s, and plenty of their troops didn't even have guns of their own. Nevertheless, the entire country of Ethiopia was very quickly mobilized for war. Every man of fighting age who could hold a weapon was conscripted, and had this just been a ground war, I do wonder if Ethiopia would have been able to win. They had numbers, they knew the territory, they were fighting for their very survival. That could have given them an edge. But it wasn't just a ground war. What really made the difference in this conflict was that Italy had almost 600 airplanes. Ethiopia had all of 13 and Italy used their air power to rain down poison gas and chemical weapons onto Ethiopia. Poison gas and chemical weapons that were banned by the Geneva Convention, and Ethiopia had no real way to fight back. Over the course of the war, more than a quarter million Ethiopians died from chemical weapons alone. It's impossible not to see Italy as a bully in this situation. When you take the reality of raining down illegal weapons from airplanes on your opponent, and you juxtapose that with the glory that Italy is seeking, there's a real dissonance there. I'm not a violent person. As much as I enjoy action movies and, ex and explosions and all that, you know, I don't like actual human conflict, but one can kind of see a sort of morality in evenly matched opponents duking it out, and then the winner after defeating a worthy opponent, claiming a certain amount of, like, I don't know, warrior-ness or something like that, honor and glory and other Klingon stuff. But if you're just sitting in an airplane and raiding down chemical gases on somebody, it seems really weird to declare yourself to be, you know, super honor-glory warrior man. But Italy did that. And it's also really dissonant to see that Italy is just fighting to expand for the sake of expansion, and Ethiopia is fighting for its very life. Uh, Victor Emmanuel, the king, was apparently pretty blasé about all this. He said, If we win, I shall be king of Abyssinia. If we lose, I shall be king of Italy. As far as he was concerned, this was a fun little adventure that Italy could go on and maybe get to say it was an empire now. And meanwhile, the Ethiopians 
are fighting for the very existence of their homeland. And total mobilization or not, they didn't have the technology to counter Italian air power. In May of 1936, Italy won. After the victory, Victor Emmanuel was presented to a cheering crowd, not merely as king of Italy, but as emperor. The king was characteristically silent. Mussolini spoke for him, just as he always did. He said, quote, During the 30 centuries of our history, Italy has known many solemn and memorable moments. This is unquestionably one of the most solemn, the most memorable. People of Italy, people of the world, peace has been restored. At last, Italy has her empire. The Italian people have created an empire with their blood. They will fertilize it with their work. They will defend it against anyone with their weapons. Will you be worthy of it? Unquote. And supposedly, the cheering crowd called him back ten times to speak more. It was probably the high point of Mussolini's life. This was as popular and beloved and adored as he would ever be. In June of 1936, a month after the war, Emperor Haile Selassie, who had since fled to the United Kingdom, addressed the League of Nations in Geneva, asking for condemnation of Italy. As he entered the hall, Selassie had to put up with heckling and verbal abuse from Italians in attendance, who shouted at him, show the savage the door. In his speech, he outlined the horrors of chemical weapons, the disparity of power between Italy and Ethiopia, and said, essentially, that Italy's war went against everything that the League ostensibly stood for. That is, the enforcement of international norms and of collective security. The exiled monarch said, quote, It is collective security. It is the very existence of the League of Nations. It is the confidence that each state is to place in international treaties. It is the value of promises made to the small states that their integrity and their independence shall be respected and ensured. In a word, it is international morality that is at stake. Have the signatures appended to a treaty value only insofar as the signatory powers have a personal, direct, and immediate interest involved? No subtlety can change the problem or shift the grounds of this discussion. It is in all sincerity that I submit these considerations to the Assembly. At a time when my people are threatened with extermination, when the power of the League may ward off the final blows, may I allow to be speak with complete frankness, without reticence, in all directness, such as is demanded by the rules of equality between all state members of the League? Apart from the kingdom of the Lord, there is not on this earth any nation that is superior to any other. Should it happen that a strong government finds it may, with impunity, destroy a weak people, then the hour strikes for that weak people to appeal to the League of Nations to give its judgment in all freedom. God and history will remember your judgment. Unquote. Unfortunately, even after his soaring rhetoric and impassioned speech, Selassie was only able to get the League to agree to partial sanctions against Italy. And soon, the rest of the world recognized Italy's takeover of Ethiopia as legitimate. World maps got redrawn. Borders and atlases shifted. When cartographers drew Ethiopia, they drew it in Italy's sphere of influence. Mexico, the United States, the USSR, Spain, and for some reason, New Zealand, 
hey, go New Zealand, refused to recognize Italy's claims as legitimate. But for the rest of the world, the matter was over. Mussolini had touted international norms. He had invaded a fellow League member. He had used chemical weapons. And he'd gotten away with it. Not only had he gotten away with it, he was beloved for it. He was called back to speak ten times by an adoring crowd because of that. The most famous bit of Haile Selassie's speech to the League of Nations was not officially part of it. There's a quote that you see always thrown around that is linked to the speech, but not in the text of it. According to the New York Times, after he was done with his prepared text, after he got some polite applause and was backing away from the microphone, the king of Ethiopia murmured to himself, It is us today, tomorrow, it will be you. If you enjoy this podcast, say so. Share it with your friends. Share it with your family. Share it with your various enemies and rivals. And also help other people find it. To do that, go to iTunes, write us a review, give us a rating. That does something, some kind of alchemy in the iTunes store, and makes a thing more visible. So please do that. We're also totally listener-funded. So go to weirdhistorypodcast.com, sign up for a monthly donation to keep this thing happening. That would be excellent and also awesome of you. Uh, I'm on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast, and on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye.